Hey, if we haven't had the opportunity to meet, my name is Bob Seal. I'm one of the pastors here at Timberline Church. And I just want to say for all of you that made it out through the minus eight degree weather and snow today, you are the true Coloradoans. Give yourselves a hand. And if you are online with us, sitting in your pajamas or sweatpants, warm in your house, you are the smart Coloradoans. Give yourselves a hand. These guys, they're crazy. I love it. Um, hey, we're going to talk today a little bit about curveballs, okay? Has life ever thrown you a curveball? I mean, outside of the global pandemic that's going on, right? which life has felt a little bit like a curveball like every day or every few days. But outside of that, has life ever thrown you a curveball that's just stopped you in your tracks and changed the trajectory of your life the way it was going? See, a good curveball is a really tough pitch to hit. I've played baseball, I've coached baseball and fast pitch softball at the high school and club level, and the thing that's tough about a curveball is it's not only traveling towards you, it's traveling either sideways towards you or away from you, and it's traveling up and down. It, the thing's moving all over the place, and a good curveball, if you're a batter and you're up at a plate, if it's really a filthy curveball, it will freeze you. You want to hit it, but you aren't sure what's going to happen, and you just freeze, and it slides in there for a strike. Or you swing, and you just miss it wildly, all right? I had a curveball seven years ago, actually to this week, that happened to me, and it froze me. It stopped my life and everything that was going on, and I was diagnosed with stage four thyroid cancer. And over the course of seven days, two surgeries, one week apart, they removed my thyroid. But during my second surgery, the initial anesthesia that, you know, the anesthesiologist gives you to go to la-la land a little bit, it's so good. Well, it didn't start hitting me until after I was inside the operating room. And I went in, and the thing that struck me about the operating room is that there were tables, a big row of tables, and there was a buffet of surgical instruments, hundreds of surgical instruments there. And I was just, I just kept looking at it, and I'm thinking, are those for me? And I looked at my surgeon, and I was like, and you need to know the anesthesia was kicking in at this point. So it sounded like this in my head. I hope it came out different. I was like, Whoa, Doc, are all those for me? And he looks at me and he goes, yeah. He says, I have every instrument at my disposal that I would possibly need for this surgery. I have all the instruments at my disposal, no matter what curveball might be thrown at me during the surgery. We're going to read, get into Paul's letter to the Ephesians, okay, chapter 1 today. But the main thought or theme of this letter written by Paul to this church in Ephesus is this, that when we begin a relationship with Jesus, when we put our faith in Jesus, in Paul's language, when we are in Christ, we have everything at our disposal that we possibly need to live a blessed 
and flourishing life, even in the midst of life's curveballs. That's great news, isn't it? But I have a confession to make, and maybe you can relate to it. I've actually read and studied this chapter before. I understand this stuff. I actually went to graduate school to understand what Paul's writing about. I read my Bible almost every day. I pray with some success and some failure. I go to church. And you're like, well, good for you, Bob. Like you check the boxes for the minimal requirements for a pastor there. But in spite of doing all those things, sometimes my life in faith, my life in Christ is wildly inconsistent. The good news is, I feel comforted by this, is that Paul felt the same way. He said this in a book called Romans that he wrote, a letter that he wrote, I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. Do you ever feel like that? You know what you should do, but you don't do it, and then you end up doing something that you regret. Here's what it looks like in my life. If Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Okay, now, if you don't know that song, if you aren't familiar with it, it's, it's a song that you, you learn just kind of in your youngest years as a kid in a Christian home. In fact, here's the truth, you guys. You may, you may not know this. If you're a really good Christian parent, okay, the baby is born, the doctor spanks your baby on the rear end, and instead of crying, your baby sings, yes, Jesus loves me. That's, that's what... I'm sure that happened to Jordan, okay? (laughs) But if Jesus loves me, if he's for me, how come I go through so many days not feeling loved or I feel alone? If I'm forgiven by God, why do I have so much trouble forgiving myself or my parents or my kids or my spouse? If I'm a unique, beautiful, one-of-a-kind creation, created in God's image, how come when I scroll through my social media feed, everybody on there looks more attractive and more successful than me? My friend told me this the other day, her four-year-old, he didn't want to go to daycare because the Band-Aid on his boo-boo was not the right color. He was afraid that his friend's At daycare, we're going to make fun of him when he got there, dealing with insecurity in comparison at four years old. I'm still dealing with insecurity at 57 years old, but it's way more deep and complex than the color of the Band-Aid that I wear. I remember being in high school, middle school, in college. And I remember Jesus being so relevant when I was with one group of friends, but then when I was with another group of friends, he didn't seem relevant at all. Sometimes I felt like I was living two different lives. Have you ever felt like that? What's missing? Well, Ephesians 1, if we look at it through the context of Paul's life, has some principles that will address the inconsistency that we maybe live our life and faith with. Now, as we read Ephesians, I want you to know that the language, the writing style, it's going to seem strange to you, and that's okay. Paul's writing specifically to connect with people living in Ephesus in 62-ish AD, 
which is Western Asia. The passage is wordy. It, there's giant run-on sentences in it. Um, I'm going to break it down for you, kind of 2021 style, once we read through it. But keep in mind that just because something's hard to read or it was written a long time ago doesn't mean that it doesn't have something relevant for our life today. So if you want to follow on, follow along, if you brought your Bible or on a device, it'll be on the screen. We're going to start Ephesians 1, verse 3, 3 through 9. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice that word Lord there. We could skip by it. If you're familiar with the Bible at all, you probably just blew by that. Paul is painting a picture that is really foreign to how we live here today in the United States. Paul, from the start, is painting a picture of kings and kingdoms. The picture he's painting right here, the world that these guys are living living in is more like Lord of the Rings or the Game of Thrones. He's using king and kingdom language. Praise be to the God and Father of our King, Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Notice the key figure here is not us, it's Jesus. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have a redemption, big word there, in him we have redemption through his blood. This is referring to the blood Jesus shed on the cross. lost my place. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he has lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. What a mouthful. If I was writing this today, I would have put it in the bullet points in a list so that I could understand it, and that's exactly what I did. Paul is saying this in our 2021 terms. If we are in Christ, we have every spiritual blessing, every one, generous. God's not holding a single blessing back from us. We have everything we need. In Christ, we are chosen. We are First round of the draft, you're picked first by God. You're beloved. You're the crown jewel of his creation. In Christ, we are holy. We are without blemish or fault. We are pure. In Christ, we are blameless in his eyes. In Christ, he doesn't see any shame. In Christ, we don't have to wear the shame that other people put on us. We don't have to wear the shame that we put on ourselves. In Christ, we're like Teflon. Shame slides off of us. In Christ, we were loved before we were born. Jesus has been working on your behalf before you were you. In Christ, we are adopted with the full rights 
of a son or daughter of the king. And not just a king, but the king of kings. Paul says this in Romans 8. He he says the same thing, but he calls us co-heirs with Jesus. We're elevated up up, almost to the same level as Jesus. We are going to have the inheritance that God's son Jesus inherits. And through Jesus, that is ours. In Christ, we have redemption. There's the big word. It means this, the broken, ugly, disappointing parts of our story that we want to hide, we don't want anybody to know about. Jesus, in Christ, he's going to take that part of your story. He's going to redeem it and make it beautiful, and he's going to use it to bless your life and the life of those around you in Christ. In Christ, we are forgiven. And in Christ, we have wisdom to see the mysterious. In Christ, we have eyes that can see the invisible movements of God around us, in us, and through us out into the world. That's who we are in Christ. That's what's our disposal. How good is that? That Give me an amen on that. That's a lot, isn't it? That's a full list. It's important for us to know where this came out of in Paul's life as he wrote this. See, Paul, on a road trip to a city called Damascus, encounters Jesus. In that moment on the road trip to Damascus, Jesus made it clear to Paul from the start of their relationship that life was to be a cooperative partnership and adventure with him. Jesus didn't simply download Ephesians 1, all this stuff into him like a computer, and all of a sudden, like, boom, he's a Christian Avenger, a Christian superhero. No, Paul was transformed each day as he cooperated with Jesus' purposes and plans in his life. And as he did that, Jesus transformed him from the inside out. And all the things in that list of Ephesians 1 at our disposal, Paul began to have access to so that when life threw him curveballs, and if you know the life of Paul, man, did he have some curveballs. But he had everything at his disposal to live a flourishing and blessed life in Christ. Paul knew the truth of this spiritual principle here. Cooperation with Jesus leads to transformation. Cooperation leads to transformation in our life with Christ. Say that with me. Cooperation leads to... Paul knew this. It's how our lives in Christ work. But this gets me thinking, I wonder if my inconsistency in my faith is because I'm not very cooperative. Most of the time, I don't think I'm deliberately not cooperating with Jesus. More often than not, I think maybe I'm subtly manipulating my relationship with Jesus. Here's what I mean. Have you ever bargained with God? Have you ever prayed these desperate prayers of like, Jesus, if you will do this for me, then I will do this for you. That's how I got through middle school, high school, and college. I'm like, Jesus, please. I didn't study for that test. Again, if you help me pass, I will be in church every Sunday for a year. We bargain with God. You ever pray those kind of prayers? It's a little manipulative. 
Maybe like me, you graduated to more sophisticated bargaining with God. Hey, God, you know, if I read my Bible, pray, go to church, give financially, shovel my neighbor's driveway when it snows, you know, do all the right things, all the good things, I expect you to reward me with success and blessing. It's kind of like we're striking up a little quid pro quo deal with God. Hey, God, I'll do a little something for you. You did a little something for me. And this is crazy because he already did everything for us. It's manipulative. Would you want a relationship like that in your life? The person only called you up on the phone when you could do something for them? Maybe you're carrying some baggage because of how you were introduced to God. God and God's stuff. Maybe it was used to control you or used against you to manipulate you and instead of helping you flourish. And as a result, your picture of God is that he's stingy, he's judgy, he's a fun killer. But life is so hard right now in this moment, you've turned to God as a last resort. I've been there. Maybe you did this, I call it God in a box. I'm kind of, I'm pretty independent, you guys. I kind of like to do things. I don't like to ask for help. I like to do it on my own, my way. And maybe, like me, you take God, you put him in a box over here until you get to the point where you have to open it up and let God do something for you. I think, I think subtly, sometimes in Christ, I try to live in a manipulative relationship with God. But there's a principle in play here that we all ought to be aware of. It's like an early warning signal for us if we're living in manipulation with God. Cooperation, if you're keeping notes, cooperation leads to what? Transformation. Cooperation leads to transformation, but manipulation leads to stagnation. Stagnation means there's no movement. It means you're stuck. You don't know how to get out of it. It doesn't feel relevant, meaningful. There's no passion to your relationship with Jesus. And I don't know about you, I don't want to live my life uncooperative or stagnant or manipulative. Do you? I want to flourish in my life. I want to cooperate with what Jesus is doing around me, in me, through me. I want to have access and be able to access all these things that Paul mentions in Ephesians 1. And not only that, I want people to see Christ in me. And through being with me, I want Jesus to use me so they can experience his grace, his forgiveness, his redemption, his love, every spiritual blessing. But there's another principle in play. You cannot give what you do not possess. So if you're keeping notes, you cannot give what you do not possess. So if I want to share God's love with my co-workers, I have to have received God's love deeply in my soul. If I want to be an instrument of grace and peace to my family and my neighbors. I need to have received God's grace and peace and know it in my own life. If I want to be free of bitterness or anger and be 
living with a spirit of forgiveness in my relationships, in my marriage, and with my family. I must have received God's forgiveness. We gain access to the Ephesian 1 passage there. We gain access to those as we cooperate with Jesus. And he transforms us from the inside out. And as he transforms us, then we have access to everything that's our disposal, no matter what life throws at us. Now you might be wondering, okay, Bob, I need to jumpstart this thing. I suspect I might have been living a little manipulative. Maybe you got a curveball that just froze you. Instead of cooperating or manipulation, maybe you just even withdrew from God. How do I jumpstart this cooperative engine that I'm created with to cooperate with Jesus? It's actually pretty simple, but it's going to take some commitment on our part to do it. We need to read the Bible. Okay, it's pretty simple, but hard to commit to. We're going to read the Bible with an eye of doing what it tells us to do. And not every passage is as confusing as that Ephesians 1 passage. Sometimes it's more direct. Paul wrote another letter to a church in a city called Philippi, which is modern-day Greece. And here he gives us a really practical example of how we can jumpstart our cooperative engine with Jesus. Very practical. Philippians 4, verse 8. And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts of what is on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about these things that are excellent and worthy of praise. We cooperate with Jesus by being intentional on what we are fixing our thoughts on during the day. We cooperate by what we've been fixing our thoughts on during the day. In baseball, a good or, or fast-pitch softball, a good swing starts here. It starts with a mental process, just like our faith. It starts with what we put in here. And Paul is saying, fix your thoughts on whatever's true, honorable, honorable, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, worthy of praise. So here is what we're going to do to jumpstart our cooperation with Jesus. We're going to be intentional for seven days about what we put in here. Not a year, not a month. I'm inviting you for seven days to be intentional about what you fix your mind on. For seven days, I want you to be intentional about looking for Philippians 4, 8 moments in your life. They're all around you. We just have to be looking for them. Before you go to bed each night, I want you to examine your day and focus on any moment, any conversation, any encounter you had during that day that was true. It was honorable. It was right. It was pure. It was lovely. It was excellent. It was worthy of praise. 
And then I want you to narrow it down. Once Once you recall that, I want you to ask this question. Where do I see Jesus moving in that moment? Where do I see Jesus moving in that moment? To do this well, we're going to have to be intentional about looking for those Philippians 4 moments. And when you find them, I want you to take a mental picture, or better yet, I want you to pull out your phone. You're having lunch with somebody, and it feels lovely. It feels excellent. They're they're just an admirable person. I want you to be like, hey, selfie. Take a selfie with yourself, because later that night, you're going to go back as you get ready to go to bed, and you're going to look, and you're going to say, hey, where do I see God in that, or in that person, or in that conversation? But we have to be intentional. In fact, if you're an overachiever, Okay, you know who you are. You don't need to raise your hands, and everybody else knows who you are, right? Post your picture on social, ma- on social media. Put a hashtag, a Philippians 4.8 hashtag there that says excellent, admirable, lovely. Others won't know what you're doing, but we will as we see it, and we'll encourage one another during the week. Now, before I go any further, I'm going to give you an example of what this might look like for you so that you kind of get a clearer idea what I'm talking about. But we have to ask this question. It's a question of commitment right here, right now. Will we live intentionally or accidentally this week in what we fix our minds on? Right now, are you willing to say, hey, I'm going to live intentionally for seven days about what I put in here because I want to cooperate with Jesus because I know that cooperation leads to? And I want to be transformed so that I can use all the instruments that are at my disposal full of full and flourishing, blessed life, not just for me, so that God's love spills out of me and all around. Will you be intentional? Will you be intentional about jump-starting your cooperative engine? Here's an example to help you out from my life so you can get a picture of it. Instead of examining the day at the end of my day, because I'm pretty tired when I go to bed, I've been doing a practice of actually examining examining my day at the end of the workday. Before I go home, rock into my house from a, a busy day, I take 10 minutes and I just examine the day, the conversations. And I'm taking mental notes along the way of pictures of the conversations I've had and noting the ones that are Philippians 4-8 moments. A few days ago in my office, as I was practicing practicing this, it was a pretty demanding, complicated, charged day. I looked at a picture that sits in my office, and we can throw that up if you want to. This picture wasn't taken this week, but I focused my, my eyes on it. I fixed my thoughts on it, and I thought about what it means to be in Christ. See, this is picture is from a Timberline Student Ministries mission trip to the Dominican Republic, and the girl on the right's a high school senior, and the girl on the left is a Haitian refugee. This is, I believe, night one. They've just met. Look at how they're looking at each other. Look how connected they are. 
Hashtag, hashtag, lovely. <laughs> Notice the smile on their faces. Hashtag pure. Notice the dancing and movement of their dresses and what's going on around them. It's an excellent moment. Hashtag excellent. This TSM student, Timberline Student Ministers, this high schooler is literally playing, laughing, and dancing. This little girl into the kingdom of God. Hashtag worthy of praise. Later in the week, when this high school young woman stood up and presented a message about who Jesus is, do you think this Haitian girl listened? I think she hung on every word because she had already experienced Jesus Christ in the dancing and play of one of his kids. Then I ask the question I want you to ask when you think of these moments from your day, where do I see Jesus in this? As I sat there a couple days ago, this is where I saw Jesus in this. I think being in Christ is moving with Jesus throughout my day. I think cooperating with Jesus should feel more like dancing than duty. I see God's kids, his adopted sons and daughters, connecting with people and Jesus through laughter, play, and the simple joy of being together. What if we Christians, Christ followers, were known for our laughter, our play, our playful spirit, our dancing more than we were known for our lectures and sermons? If all of us in this room were more like this as we went out of the church, what do you think would happen? I think one Sunday we would break the internet. We would have to build a bigger building. People would be hanging on every word when we talked about Jesus. This picture reminds me that Jesus transcends color and language and age and socioeconomics and politics, that God is on the move and he's transforming lives. It reminds me that he delights in me and you, like a parent does in their children. Like when your kid hits the curveball and knocks it out of the park in the act of doing something true, honorable, right, lovely, excellent, and praiseworthy. They're cooperating with Jesus. The girl on the right is my youngest daughter, Riley. And the photographer caught a moment in her life, a Damascus Road kind of moment, where she was cooperating with Jesus. Nobody would have known it if you'd run into her, but it was a hard year, full of curveballs. And if you saw what was going on in her soul, you would know that she felt frozen, stuck, and she felt like she had swung and struck out a hundred times that year. But God used this moment to create a movement of transformation in her life where she began to access what was always at her disposal. 
When we cooperate with Jesus, I think God looks with the eyes of a parent. I think he finds us captivating as he watches us with Jesus bring a little bit of heaven into earth, light in the darkness, hope in the hopelessness. I think you can't take his eyes off of us. So Timberline Windsor, as we go from here today, be assured of this. The King of Kings delights in you. In Christ, we have everything we need at our disposal to live a blessed life in spite of life's curveballs. Remember this, cooperation leads to transformation. Let's be intentional for the next seven days, cooperating with God by being aware and intentional about what we're putting in here. And may God bless you with Philippians 4, 8 moments where you see him moving around you, in you, and threw you out into the world. You're captivating. You may not feel like it, but in Christ, that's what Paul is saying you are to him. Somebody needs to hear that today. When you look in the mirror, that's not how you feel. Some of us have been thrown some curveballs, withdrawn from God, and in this moment, you feel you're something in your spirit where you feel like, okay, I need to step back into that relationship and begin to cooperate. Some of us are thinking, man, what if the church really did look more like dancing and play and laughter and could we really break the internet if we were out there like that? In Christ, let's cooperate. Let's pray. Jesus, we come this morning And some of us came carrying some heavy stuff and we lay that at your feet right now and we ask that you would remove that burden and that in this moment, you would begin a movement in our life of cooperation with you anew. Jesus, for some of us, we didn't start this day knowing and being in a relationship with you, but we want all those things. We want every spiritual blessing. We want love. We want forgiveness. We want redemption. We want to be blameless and free of our shame. And in this moment, you want to give your life to Jesus as much as you know about yourself, as, as much as you know about him. Jesus, we need you. We love you. Take our lives and make it a cooperative adventure with you. And Jesus, may Timberline Church be a people who laugh, who laughs, plays, and dances people into your presence. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.